0: Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at a, a passage that may be most likely to be familiar to you, but it is full of depth and strength and power. So Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read verse 4 through verse 10. So follow along with me in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God performed beforehand, that we should walk in them. Saved by grace, it's a phrase that we use in our conversation as believers that is full of great truth. Saved by grace is a deep theological concept. It's full of truth and it pierces our very souls. Saved by grace, a biblical truth with ramifications for us to understand who we are in Christ and how we are to live. So let's look at some background on this letter, the Ephesian letter that Paul wrote. Paul's the author of this letter. Paul ministered and pastored the Ephesian believers for three years. It's now some years later, and Paul is in prison, and he is concerned about these believers back in Ephesus, and he has a great heart for them. So he writes this letter to them, and he wants to help them understand two major things. The first is, who are we in Christ as believers? And the second thing is, how do we live in Christ? So as we have this letter of Ephesians, it's broken up into six chapters, so chapters one through three, the first half is all about who are we in Christ? The second half, chapters 4 through 6, is all about how do we live in Christ. So it's sort of the theological and the practical. We are smack dab in the middle of the theological part here in chapter 2 about how or who are we in Christ. Now again, kind of bring us up to speed because we don't want to take a, a, a verse of Scripture and look at it out of context. It starts with the word but, so that means there's something before the word but that is important for us to understand. So just by way of review, quickly, chapter 1, Paul is telling us who we are in Christ, and he says, you know what? You are blessed. We are blessed as believers. We have every spiritual blessing God can give, and we have it. And that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have given some things to us, that God the Father has provided for us, that we are, we're called, we're chosen. God has picked you and me as a believer. God chose us. God predestined us. In other words, he predetermined ahead of time that he was going to have a relationship with you and me as believers. Thirdly, that God the Father, God the Father has, excuse me. So God the Father has chosen us, he's predestined us, and he's adopted us. We were these wayward children out there that God called us unto himself and brought us into his family. He's adopted us. And we're his children with all the rights and privileges thereof. God the Son, God the Son has, through him, we've been redeemed. See, through Jesus' blood, the penalty for our sin is paid for. So we are redeemed. Through Christ, we have the knowledge of the will of God. Now think about that for a moment. The knowledge of the will of God. The average person who doesn't know the Lord has no idea what the will of God means, is about, or all about it. Through Christ, we know the mystery of the will of God. And then thirdly, that we've obtained an inheritance through Christ. Christ has provided an inheritance for us. Just like we think of inheritance, one day I will die, my wife will die, we will leave things that we've accumulated in our life to our children. You will leave them to your children or family members or wherever you choose. That's an inheritance. Through Jesus, we have an inheritance. We've obtained an inheritance. And then God the Spirit also has done three things for us. God the Spirit has sealed us. It is a done deal as a believer. There's a stamp, there's a seal on that. You are saved. God the Spirit has given us a promise. The promise of God that God will do everything that he has said that he will do. And then the third thing that the Spirit does for us is he's a pledge. He's a pledge. He's a down payment. This future, this future inheritance that we will have, the Holy Spirit is a pledge, is a down payment toward that inheritance. It will happen. So Paul has sort of outlined these things for us. We're blessed. We have all these things from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now we come into chapter 2, the first three verses of chapter 2. Paul has to remind the believers in Ephesus And he's also reminding us, as believers, to hear in the 21st century, of who we were, the way we were. That verse one of chapter two. What does it say? You were dead in your trespasses and sin. So this is our condition before knowing the Lord. We are dead. We're over here. We are dead spiritually. Now, what does dead mean? What would be the opposite of that? Alive. Dead is no life we're gone that's it it's over with we are dead there's no coming back from the dead we have no nothing within our power to do that within god's power that can happen that can happen so we're dead in our trespasses and sin well you know we're we're a pretty ugly picture now we lived life and these verses tells us we lived life with kind of three philosophies of life one was you know everybody's doing it everybody's doing it, so that's okay. It makes it okay, everybody's doing it. Second one is, you know what, the, the devil made me do it. You know, there's just so many, so many things he put in front of me, just like I, had, I couldn't resist it, I just had to do it. And then the third one is, you know what, just do what feels good. You only go around once in life, so just do whatever feels good. This, These are the philosophies of life that we, in general, have, that lived as unbelievers. This is who we were. So Paul says, you know, you've been blessed with all these things, but here's who you were, and now we come to verse 4 here in Ephesians chapter 2. What are the two, first two words here? Right there in front of you. What are the two words? But God. But God. See, there are all these terrible things. This is who you were. You're talking about, you're, you're down in the pit. This is the ugly of ugliest here. But God. This makes me think of the first four words of the Bible. You go back to Genesis chapter one, and what does it say in Genesis chapter one? The first four words are, anybody? Anybody remember chapter one, verse one of Genesis? You can say it, in the beginning, God. Before time ever existed, God is. In the beginning, God. So when we look here in Ephesians chapter two, all these horrible things about who we were, and it's but God. Everything about who God is is wrapped up in this. God's character and all his attributes are wrapped up in but God. You were this vile person, but God. And what does it say? Being rich in what? Rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Now, according to this verse, how wealthy is God when it comes to mercy? He's rich. Right, he's rich, he's he's rich. Now, when we think of being rich, and I just looked this up, as of last week, Forbes Magazine tells us that Bill Gates is no longer the richest person in the world. He's now number two. So he's gonna have to try harder now. The richest person in the world is the founder and CEO of Amazon. And we all go, oh, that makes sense because I buy things from Amazon all the time. I'm always clicking to buy something, right? Jeff Bezos, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but Jeff Bezos is the, most, is the richest man in the world. $112 billion is what he's worth. He is the first, what they're now calling, the first centibillionaire. He's worth over $100 billion. To us, it's like, I can't even imagine that. I mean, $112 billion is what he's worth? How in the world? Well, when it comes to comparing that to God, the word that comes to mind is puny. Puny. God's wealth makes Jeff Bezos' $112 billion look like chump change. That is how wealthy God is. That's how wealthy God is in his mercy. Now, you say, well, what is, what is mercy? I and mean, it's a word that we are familiar with, a word we use, but what does it really mean? It's a Greek word here in the scripture. It's from it's Elios. And Elios is a word that comes from a Hebrew word, hesed. The word has said in the Old Testament, the word is translated love. We translate the word love. But it's one of these elusive sort of concepts because it's very, very deep in the the God and who God is and his character. This is a deep, loyal love that God has for his people. And out of that word, we get the Greek elios, which here is translated mercy. We translate it mercy. Think of mercy this way. Mercy is not getting something that you do deserve. Mercy's not getting something you do deserve. So according to the Scripture, as an unbeliever who were dead in trespasses and sin, what do we deserve for that? I think our death. The Scripture tells we deserve death for that. But God the Son has redeemed us from that. We deserve death. So mercy, God's mercy is not giving us something that we do deserve. We deserve death, but God shows his mercy and does that, give us that. Now, on the flip side of that coin is this other concept of grace. Grace is getting something getting something that we do not deserve. God giving us something we do not deserve. Do we deserve to be redeemed? Did we do anything to deserve that? No, we didn't. We don't deserve that, but God gives it to us. So God both gives us his mercy and he gives us his grace when it comes to salvation. So God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Why does God show us his mercy? What does it say right here? His love. God's love. This love is, again, another Greek word is the word agape. You may be familiar with that word. Agape love. Now the thing about languages is all things don't translate well necessarily. In English, we have one word for the word love, basically. So I could say to you, you know, I, I love my truck. I love my truck. I could say, I love my dog. He's just a really cool dog. If you met him, you'd say, that's a cool dog. I can say, I love my wife. Now, you would infer from all three of those statements that that kind of love is different. I don't love my truck the way I love my wife. I don't love my dog the way I love my wife. We understand by inference the different meanings because we only have one word for the word love. In Greek, in the scripture, there are three words used in the scripture. The first is the word eros, which is, it's not used very often, but it refers to a physical or a sexual love. Then there's phileo, which is a brotherly love, thus the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, is two Greek words, phileo and adelphos, brother and love, so brotherly love. The third word, the word that's used here is agape, agape love, and this, this word is reserved for God. This is a love that only God has and only God can exhibit, and that we can only appropriate through God. We cannot love somebody with agape love except by way of God working in and through us. Now what did God do with this great love that he had? What does it say here in verse 4? Because of his great love with which, what did he do? He loved us with it. So God did, you know, God's got this great love but what did he do with it? He used it, and he appropriated it to us. See, love is, we tend to think of love as a feeling. It's a feeling, you know. I, like my wife Robin, we, we fell in love 40 years ago. But you know what it has sustained us for 40 years? Not the feeling of love, but the action of love. Love is an action word, something that we do. You don't just feel it. I mean, occasionally you feel it, but it's all about loving. We consciously love someone or not, and show them love, and do things that, would show our love for them. God, in the same way, has shown he's taken that love that he has, it's part of who he is, God is love, and he's exhibited to us, he's used that love for our benefit and our favor through his mercy and his grace. You know, we make choices about loving people, don't we? You know, we choose whom we're going to love or not love, we do that all the time. Sometimes it's just because you just you only have so much capacity, you can't love everybody. You just can't you just, there's just not enough time to do that. Other times it's more about I don't know if I'm gonna love that person or not. That's a choice we make. That's something for us to think about. You know, who to whom or whom do you love? And this is driven home for us because the scripture tells us this about and know you say, how does an unbeliever look at us and how do we exhibit Christ to someone? The scripture tells us that they will know unbelievers will know that you are my disciples if what if you have love for one another that means us as believers loving each other so how in the world are we going to love an unbeliever if we can't even love believers so you may look around the room and go okay i guess i need to change my habits here you know Um, we as a body we need to love one another and us exhibiting our love for each other and doing things for each other that people would look at and go why in the world do you do that? I, just, I don't get that. I don't understand that. See, for us, it, for us, it becomes normal. It's who we are. It's how we live life. We love each other. The world sees that and go, that's just not normal where I come from. People just don't do that kind of thing for each other. That speaks to people. That's why the scripture says that They will know you're my disciples by your, for, by your love for one another. So whom do you love? So God exhibits this great love. Now, did we deserve it? Look at verse 5. What was our condition when God chose to love us? Verse 5, even when you were dead in your transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So our condition was what? We were dead in our transgressions. So here we are. We're this dead person. Again, dead means what? There's no life. So we're dead. Now, we're not physically dead. Obviously, people still walk around, so we're kind of the walking dead. We're the walking spiritual dead people before coming to Christ. We physically are alive. We physically can move around and do things and speak, but spiritually, we're dead. And what does that mean? That means that there's no relationship with God. See, something we have to understand about God is God is holy. Not only is God love and God exhibits mercy, God is holy. What does that mean? That means that God cannot and will not allow any sin at all in His presence ever. That's you know, a dim prospect for a person to think. Well, I'm pretty good. You know, I do more good things than bad things. You know, people think that. Well, you know, if I weigh it out, I think I've done I've done more good things in life than bad things. So in the end, God will see that, and and I'll get into heaven. The reality is, if there's one speck of sin on this side of the scale one speck there's no entrance there's no being in the presence of god and there's no way there is no way for us to do this that's impossible on our own it comes from god and we'll see that here in a moment so where does this put people where does this put us before coming to christ it puts us in a really bad way i mean this is this seems pretty hopeless over here the dead person how do we get out of this But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, what did God do? He did three things here, but what's the first one here? In verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And on into verse 6. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God made us alive. So here we were, we were this dead person over here. We can't do anything to help ourselves. We're dead. What did God do? God took this dead Kevin Stefano, and he made him alive. He did the same thing for you if you know Christ. He took you as a dead person and made you alive with Christ. So how, you know, how does that work? So think about this. There's this plight on mankind known as sin. Jesus comes into the picture. Jesus comes to earth as a man. He's the God man. And what did Jesus do? He lived a perfect life. He was crucified. He was killed. Crucified for our sin. He took the penalty of our sin, died for that. But did he stay dead? What did God do? On the third day, what did he do? He raised him up. God raised up Jesus. And so, here when it says we were raised with him, when God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus conquered what? He conquered death and he conquered sin. And by virtue of our relationship with him, God has too raised us up. And we've conquered death and conquered conquered sin. Because look what it says. It says we've made alive together with Christ and he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. He's done these things for us. Nothing we did, God did it. Because it's impossible for us to do this. It's impossible. Now he makes a note here, he says, for by grace you have been saved. Have been saved. Now I'm throwing a whole lot of Greek at you this morning, but... Something we we don't really do a lot in English and in our world today. We don't care a whole lot about grammar, do we? I mean, those of us that are adults and, you know, we slept through junior high school and, you know, sorry to say for old English teachers, you know, that taught us grammar. But it's important in studying the scripture to understand something about, about grammar. In this case, verb tenses. You have been saved. In Greek, this is what's called the perfect tense, which means that it's a past action that has a continuing result. So you have been saved. There was a point in time, boom. Jesus died on the cross for the penalty of my sin and yours, salvation occurs. And it continues on. And it keeps going. And it's permanent. It doesn't stop. So the perfect tense means it's, it happen. An action happened in the past. And that is a continuing, ongoing, permanent result from that. So that when it says that you have been saved, it keeps going. It keeps going. So we're going to come back to this idea. So here in verse 6 now. So God makes us alive together with Christ... And he raised us up with him, and now where are we? What does the scripture say? Where are we? Where are we seated? We're seated with him. Where? In the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Where is Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, isn't he? And this tells us that when in salvation, we are seated with him at the right hand of God. Now you say, well, wait a minute. I'm sitting in a chair chair right here in McKinney, Texas at LifePoint Fellowship. How can I be seated at the right hand of God? We're talking about the physical and we're talking about the spiritual. See, Jesus is physically, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Spiritually right now, positionally, spiritually, you and I as believers are seated at the right hand of God. We're living life physically in McKinney, Texas and doing life, but we're spiritually already there. We're spiritually seated at the right hand of God. Important concepts for us to understand. God has raised us with Jesus. We're seated with him at the right hand of the Father. He's made us alive. But you know what? We have an enemy. We have an enemy who is wily and deceitful, and he's going to do everything he can within his power to deceive us. Now the enemy, Satan, he knows that there's nothing he can do about this position that we're in. There's nothing he can do to take away my salvation or your salvation. There's nothing he can do to change that. But what he can do Is it can make you think you have a problem in that. Now you see, some of us come from backgrounds where we're part of a faith or a religion that taught that you know you had to work you had to work for this, and again we'll talk about this in a minute. The reality is, that's not how it works. There's nothing Satan can do except make you think, make you think that you don't have the things that you already have. So don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Now, going on to verse 7 here, so we've been made alive with Christ, we have been raised up with Christ, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, why? Verse 7, why? In order that what? In the ages to come, he, God, might show the surpassing riches of his grace. Remember we just talked about how much mercy does God have, how rich is God in mercy? Vastly rich in mercy. Well, this is I right here. He has surpassing greatness and grace. He's he's rich in both mercy and grace, which God bestows upon us. And you know what? God wants to make that evident. He wants to show the world, show us as believers. This is, this is what God is. This is what God's doing. This is what He's done. God wants to put it on display. So think of it this way: if you if you see a wonderful work of art, you know, painting or a sculpture. What do we typically think about when we see that? Do we ask the question, well, who is that guy in that picture? I don't recognize him. But what do we say? That's an amazing piece of art. Who did that? Who sculpted that? Who painted that? Who is the artist that did that? That's this idea here. God wants it to be on display that he is the one that has done this. He is the one that is behind this. God wants to show his grace and he wants the entire world, he wants everyone to understand that I, God, did this. So here it comes. Here's, here's the crux of God's grace, the crux of our faith, the crux of our salvation here in verse 8 and onto our second point that God saves us. God loves us and now God saves us. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not as a result of works that no one should boast. Now, the word for is a, is a joining kind of a word that says, you know, because of all these other things I've just talked about, now, for, by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, again, there's grammar going to be in, thrown in here that is important grammar. How are we saved? What saves us according to this verse? It's God's grace that saves us. And what means does God use for that to happen? It's through our faith. And it's an important thing to understand that we aren't saved by our faith. My faith did not save me. God's grace saved me. The means God used was my faith in His Word, my faith in Him. That He offered salvation and I responded to that. That's the means by which God did that. But the power behind it is God's grace. So your faith and my faith is not what saves us. That would be a work. That would be something we have to do. You say, "Well, I accepted Jesus. I, my faith saved me. Nope. It's all about God's grace. And I responded to God's grace. I responded to it. Verse 9. See, it's not as a result of works that no one should boast. Think about work. I mean, we, we live in a world, we live in a culture, and it's all about work, isn't it? I mean, we love to work for things. We love to achieve things. We love to earn it and deserve it. And I just, you know, I've got my, I got the quarterly review coming up or my yearly review and I just have to, it's gotta be good. And it was good, so I, I get a raise. Or oh, it wasn't so good, so I may not have a job anymore. We live in that world of performance and work and attain and earn. We love to earn points. We love to earn favor with people. Why don't we use our credit cards for buy things? Because we get what? Points that we can then do what? We can fly somewhere for free, yay. We love to earn things. We love to work for and earn things. But see, there's no boasting here. We have no part in our salvation as far as earning it. It's all about God's offer, his free gift of salvation that we respond to. We didn't do anything for it. There's nothing that you and I could do, have ever done that God would say, well, I guess I have to give Mark salvation because he did this thing over here. That's That's not how it is. We don't earn it. We can't boast about it. You know, when you do really well at work and earn a trip to the Caribbean for a week, you, can, you could boast about that because you did that. Comes to salvation, nope. No boasting when it comes to salvation because it's all about God. God did it. It's not as a result of works. Now see, this is what separates Christianity from all, of the, all other faiths. All the hundreds of faiths out there that you can you can look at, and Christianity is in a whole different category. See, all these faiths are about, it's a religion. It's all about doing things to attain, to get to God, whatever that path looks like. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's a relationship with God where God reached down to us. It's not us trying to reach up to God, it's God reaching down to us and offering salvation. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. See, other religions are all about doing good works and it's all about us, what I've done, what I've achieved. Christianity is a relationship where God reaches down to us and he does it all, he does all the work. We just enjoy the benefit of his grace and his mercy by responding in faith to him. See, we don't do good works to earn salvation. We do good works because of our salvation. Look at it here again. It's not as a result of works that no one should boast. We don't do anything for it. We don't earn salvation by doing good works. We do good works because of our salvation. Now, here here again, there's got to watch out for the enemy here. You know, one of the big lies of the enemy is, you know, you really do need to earn it. I know you've heard all the stuff about you don't need to earn it, but you know, you really do. You really ought to do good things. You've got to weigh those good and bad out. You know, you need to do good things. And the almost equally heinous lie of the enemy is. You need to do good works to keep your salvation. I mean, come on. Look at what happened last month. With Those things you did last month, you're going to have to work that off. Lies. All lies. You were saved. Perfect tense, remember? An action happened in the past, and it's continuing. Now, does that mean we're perfect? Does that mean we don't sin in this life? No, we do. But every sin that we have committed, do commit, and will commit until the time we are with the Lord is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can do We don't earn it we don't earn it so verse verse 10 this is our third point god works through us for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them These good works. It's because of our salvation, not to attain our salvation. And so you know, it's and it's not my good works, it's not your good works. Who's, whose workmanship are we? We're God's workmanship. Right? God, is, God has created a masterpiece. The idea is a masterpiece here. The word used is sort of like a wonder, a great painting, a great sculpture. That God has created and he's worked. And he said, Mark, I created you. I create awesome things. You're one of my creations. you're my workmanship. There's everything about you is, is perfect in my sight. Patricia, God says, I created you. I don't make mistakes. I mean, you're my workmanship. I, I created a perfect being. God would say that about everybody in this room that knows him, has a relationship with him. You and I are God's masterpieces. We'd all be in the Louvre, putting it that way. We'd be the, one, the, we'd be the pieces that everyone would want to come to see and gaze upon. That's the idea of who we are in Christ. We're, we're a masterpiece of God. And our response to that is to do good works because of our salvation, not to earn it. Not to earn it, see here 's how what our our thought process ought to be like when it comes to good works it 's not my list it 's not your list. You know, we can come up with all kinds of lists you know it's The question is not you know what am I passionate about? What, what really drives me? You know, what are the operative words in those sentences? I and me it's about me What's, What am I passionate about? Our attitude ought to be. God, here I am. Use me. Use me. Because who's, whose works are these? Were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which who prepared beforehand? God prepared beforehand. So in other words, God way, way back here before any of us ever existed, God knew what he was going to do, knew what he was about, knew, it as, knew the mission of this world, and knew that you and I would be here sitting here today, talking today, And God had a plan, has a plan. He thought about this beforehand. You know, God's not making this up as we go along. Go, oh, no, wait a minute. You know, I need to rethink this. God knows. And God has a plan. We're doing God's work. So you say, well, how do we know what that is? How do we know what God's plan is? What's on God's list? Well, we need to be in prayer about that. And be in the Word of God, be in the Scripture. God, make it clear what we're about. You know, but we're just, we're all busy people in our world today. You know, Facebook and holy cow. There's a cause on every other thing you look at. You know, you can save the dogs, you can save the whales, you can save the trees. You know, you ought to be concerned about this and this and this and this. And there's this other thing over here you ought to be concerned about. We'll all go crazy if we try to participate in all that stuff. But you know, those are all distractions. Because how many of those causes are God's causes? See, we ought to be about what's God doing where is God working? And have the attitude, here I am, Lord, use me. Not, Lord, I've got this really cool list. You're going to be so impressed with what I came up with. You're going to, you're going to love this. I thought of five ministries that we all could do, and you'll be so glorified by that. And God's like, you know what, Kevin, I don't need your list. I've got a much better list than yours. How about you just take your list and burn it and get rid of it and just be about what I'm about, what I'm doing. Those are the questions we ought to be asking. Now, here I will insert a selfless plug for children's ministry here at at LifePoint. In my years in ministry as a children and family pastor, I I learned a lesson about what are people passionate about versus what is God doing, where is God working? You know, children's ministry is one of those things that, you know, Martha's always looking for people to come assist and work and help in children's ministry, That's just the way it is, because, and I'll give you my story here of years ago, I had fellow pastors, it was a large church, a number of pastors on staff, and I had fellow pastors that were helping people understand what they're passionate about. What are you passionate about? That's what you, that's where we need to plug you into ministry, because you're passionate about that. And I'm over here, I've got, we have 1,200 children to minister to every week, and it takes people to do that. And you know how many people are passionate about children's ministry? You know How many? Not nearly enough, right? Not nearly enough. That's what Martha was struggling with. Just not nearly enough. People are passionate about it. But you know what's really cool about this is when you say, Lord, you know, here I am, use me. You know what God does? You become passionate about the thing that God has called you to do because you were just available and said, Lord, I'll do whatever you want. And I'll be the first one to tell you this story. This is, goes back to my early days in ministry. Robin and I had moved to Texas, and I was going to be an intern at the church that I ended up being on staff at. Again, a large church, a whole number of interns, and I went to the director of the internship program, and and I had great plans. I mean, I'm going to work with adults, and it's going to be so great, you know, I'm going to do these wonderful things. And I walk into Al's office, and Al explains to me that, well, the area that we have a need right now for an intern is in children's ministry. I mean, children's, little people, children's ministry, not adults. But I had the attitude, Lord, Harry I am, use me. And I responded to that. And you know what happened? I developed a love and a passion for children's ministry because I opened myself up to what God was doing and I just became available. And people that are passionate about children's ministry, if you talk to any you know, people here at LifePoint, you know, they probably didn't start out that way. They were just willing to do what they needed to be done. They were willing to help. And you know what, they became passionate because, you know, the kids are really cool. They're a whole lot of fun. You watch little people absorb the word of God and it just changes their life. And you know who gets changed? I do and you do. It's just a matter of being open and available to what God is doing, what God's doing. And God prepared these things beforehand. You know, again, it's not new, nothing's new to God. So our question would be, God, you know, what is, what's your work for me this week, this month, this year? You know, you could ask God, what's your your work that God has for you this week, this month, this year? As a church, LifePoint, what does God have for us to do this week, this month, this year? You know, we're we're a room full of a bunch of individual people, and we could all come up with our own list. But you know, we'd go nowhere if we were all about doing our own thing. We had 200 people all doing their own thing. You know, as a body of believers together, we ought to be about Doak, elders of LifePoint, what has God laid on your hearts for us to do as a body? And you know what? Sign me up. Here I am, use me. It's not about my thing. What has God laid on your heart as the pastor of this church and the elders of this church? Imagine what God would do through us if we all responded that way. Wow. There is a picnic on Saturday, by the way. Keep that in mind. And we walk in these things, the scripture says. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, we don't work in them, we don't do in them, we walk in them, you know, walk, it's just about life. We walk through life, responding to what God's doing, being available to what God's doing, and you know what he's doing next week might be different than what he's doing this week. You know, this picnic is Saturday, there's not gonna be a picnic the following Saturday, so this week maybe it's, we all show up at the picnic but when it comes to something like children's ministry, that's a long-term thing. We have a gentleman in our body here who's been working with kids for 30 years and serves at LifePoint here in our children's ministry. He won't, it, he won't tell you that necessarily unless you ask him. What, why do you do something for 30 years? Because you're available to what God's got for you and God developed a passion in you for that and so you do it. You do it. <clears throat> So here's an application for us. Let's not tell God what to do. Let's not put our list on God and say, God, here's, you know, here's the thing. Let's be available to God and what he's doing. I'll tell you a story here. I got, I got a note from my daughter, our, our youngest daughter, Anna. She's off at school in Florida. And A couple of months ago, she was driving in her car and she was listening to a song on the radio. She was listening to a Stephen Curtis Chapman song. And she texted me and said, Dad, I heard this song and it reminded me of when I was little and I would ride in your truck with you and we would listen to Stephen Curtis Chapman, his speechless album. I thought, I remember that. It was a lot of good time. We'd sing and laugh and giggle. And, and so one of the songs on that album by Stephen Curtis Chapman is this song, Whatever. And I'm going to read the words to you because it's applicable to what we're talking about here in terms of being available to God and not worrying about what we think is a good idea. Here it goes. I made a list. Wrote down from A to Z all the ways that I thought you could best use me. Told of my strengths and my abilities, I formed a plan. It seemed to make good sense. I laid it out for you so sure you'd be convinced. I made my case, presented my defense, and then I read the letter that you sent me, your word. You know what it said? Whatever. Whatever you say, whatever, I will obey. Whatever, Lord, have your way. Because you are my God. Whatever. So strike a match, set fire to the list of all my good intentions and all my preconceived ideas. I want to do your will, no matter what it is. Give me faith to follow where you lead. Oh, Lord, give me the courage and the strength to do I am not my own, I am yours and yours alone. You have bought me with your blood. Lord, to you and you alone do I belong. And so, whatever. Whatever. Let's be about what God wants us to be doing. So if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, you're saved by grace. And God loves you, believe that. God saves you, rejoice in that. And God works through you. Walk in that. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, then today is your day. You can go from death to life. You can go from being sinner to saint. From unbeliever to believer. You can go from being dead in your sin to being alive with Christ. I'd be happy to talk with you after our service. I know... Our elders would be happy to do that as well, or the person you came with would be happy to talk with you about that. Let's pray together.